today's subject on the work of al-imam muhammad saeed ramadan al-buti rahimahullah ta'ala which is known in arabic as kubra al-yaqiniyat al-kawniyah the greater universal sureties with regard to the book firstly the book was written in the 1970s when there was an influx of materialistic thought in the Middle East, socialism, the English translation of the book. There was an influx of dialectical materialism. And he even wrote a book known as Naqdu Awhamil Madatil Jadaliya, which is a critique of dialectic materialism. And this book he wrote as a response to the growth of atheism in that time, prior to what we have today, uh, what became known as New Atheism. New Atheism is distinct, totally different movement. But the book starts with what we know as epistemology in our method of determining facts. How do we go about determining what is truthful and what is falsehood? We as Muslims, do we have an epistemology of attaining knowledge? And the answer is yes, of course we do. That involves, of course, firstly what we know as the judgment of the mind, the rational judgment, which is known as al-hukmul aqli. What is al-hukmul aqli, the, the, the rational judgment? It's the judgment we give from our mind without any external reference. This one thing is so important in today's discussions that if a person cannot make the distinction between a rational judgment and a scientific judgment they will make the mistake of confusing themselves to the point that they cannot make a distinction between a miracle and that which is possible and that which is impossible so a rational judgment, a judgment of the mind, is that which has no external reference. Without any external reference, we know, for instance, two and two is four. But that's not from an external reference, it's from the mind. Because you can have a blind person who has never seen two objects and another set of two objects, together they become four. He will form the judgment from his mind an abstraction, abstract judgment. He will give the judgment that two and two is four. So judgments of the mind are something, or the, the rational faculty is something we take serious in Islam. Unlike New Atheism, which assaults the mind, which if you remember the last time I came, we covered the book, Islam Answers Atheism. And I mentioned that atheism is in fact an assault on the intellect. Secondly, we have empirical judgments. Empirical judgments are those judgments we form from our sensory experience, our sensory perception. What we taste, what we smell, what we see, what we hear, what we touch. So you have the rational judgment and the sensory experience. Combination of both you can have. There were philosophers in the early 1900s who attempted to only validate those things which we know from sensory experience. They invalidated the rational judgments. And there were those who only validated that which is known through the mind and not through the sensory perception. But the Muslim epistemology would be that we take both of these into consideration, the rational judgment and the sensory perception. And then, of course, that's from the Qur'an, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ السَّمْعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادَ كُلُّ أُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْؤُولًا That indeed the hearing, the eyesight, the heart, all of these will be questioned regarding knowledge. The heart is in reference to the rational judgment, but the, the Qur'an validates hearing and seeing. And then we have a... Another way of determining facts which is known as mutawatir, mass transmission. What is mass transmission? That so many people tell you a fact 
to the point that it becomes impossible for them to concur on a lie. In today's day and age, people ask about social media. That on social media, sometimes you have things being presented as factual, but it's false news. Mutawatir is not in reference to that. Mutawatir is in reference to those things where it becomes virtually impossible for people to concur on lying. Like how many, how many people here have been to Copenhagen? Yet we know Copenhagen exists. How do we know that? Through Tawatur, mass transmission. So after going on to this, the author moves on to how do we determine that there is a creator? How do we know that Allah exists? One of the methods he presents is by looking at effect. And from looking at effect, we know that there is a cause. If someone went out on the road and he saw that the road is wet and everything around is wet, he will conclude that it has rained. This is reasoning from effect to cause, not from cause to effect. Because you could go outside sometimes and see a cloud and you may think it will rain, but then afterwards it becomes clear that it will not rain. You could be mistaken. But when you reason from effect to cause, you know that you will reach some type of certainty. Similarly, uh, in the epistemology, how we determine facts, we know from signification. One thing signifies another. This, in fact, was one of the contributions of the Arabs to Greek, to Greek logic. The, the method of signification, dalalat. That if you see smoke from far, you know that there is a fire. The signification. Similarly, when you hear someone knocking at the door, you know there is someone behind the door. So likewise, every human mind has concluded that there is a cause for the universe. They may differ with regard to a few facts. The likeness of what, like if we were sitting in a room and the door is closed, and behind the door you hear someone knocking away at the door. Everyone in the room will agree there is a person behind the door knocking the door. But every person may have a different opinion with regard to who is behind the door. One person may have a different view, the other person will have a different view. All of humanity agrees that there is a cause for the universe. But various civilizations, they come out with different attributes of the creator so from that aspect we enter into the domain of knowing the attributes of Allah this is why it's essential that everyone knows that when you sit in your RS class in school or in college after concluding that there is a self-sustaining cause of the universe why would we conclude that there is a self-sustaining cause of the universe because everything around us is described as being contingent. What does that mean? It means everything has, is non-existent and then suddenly it comes into existence. Someone may say, how do you know the universe has a beginning? The answer is even science confirms the expanding universe. The expanding universe has a point of beginning, point of beginning. From that point of beginning, we know that the universe has a beginning and anything which has a beginning has an end. The universe is contingent by nature. That fits into the definition of contingent. Everything contingent must have a self-sufficient cause. A cause that is not reliant on anything external. Otherwise, you can never have a regress of contingencies, a regress continuously going back and back and back and back of contingent things. And that of course refutes the fallacy of the atheist where they say if God created everything then who created God? It's a fallacy because the whole point of saying that there is a self-sufficient cause means that the self-sufficient cause has no beginning in the first place. So we enter the domain of the attributes of this God that we believe in. When we enter that domain we look at and study Objectively, the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will conclude that these beliefs are rational. 
They are not irrational. The attributes of Allah. What are the attributes of Allah? Firstly, we have Al-Wujud, which I've covered many times in Newton also. That Al-Wujud, the existence, divine existence of Allah. We have Al-Qidam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is without beginning. He is beginningless. We have Al-Baqa, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is everlasting. We have Al-Mukhalafatu lil-Hawadith, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in opposition to the contingent. He bears no resemblance to the creation. We have Al-Qiyamu bin-Nafs, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is self-sufficient. And then we have Al-Wahdaniyah, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These attributes are essential for everyone to know. You must memorize those attributes. But similarly, we have attributes like As-Sam'u wal-Basaru, hearing and seeing, divine hearing and seeing, Al-Kalamu, divine speech, Al-Ilmu, divine knowledge, Al-Qudra, divine power, Al-Kalamu, divine speech, and then Al-Irada, divine will, Al-Hayatu, divine life. These are attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that everyone must know. What he does in the book Kubra al-Yaqiniyat, he has an analysis of every attribute of Allah and demonstrates that these attributes are not irrational. They are rational attributes of the divine cause. But I will cover one or two of these attributes before moving on to something else. The first attribute that I will cover which is essential for us as Muslims to know and everyone should memorize here is the attribute of al-wahdaniyah, oneness. Oneness of Allah. Why is it essential to know this? Because if we do not know the definition of tawheed and the definition of shirk, then we as Muslims are failing in our knowledge of basics of Islam. What is tawheed? The oneness of Allah, people say. What is shirk? Polytheism. Tawheed is affirming oneness in the that of Allah, in the aseity of Allah. That of Allah is one. The, the, some people translate it as the essence of Allah, the being of Allah is one. The aseity of Allah is one. Similarly, the attributes As-sifat of Allah are one. What does that mean? Firstly, it means that any attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is one attribute of each type. Like when we say Allah has al-qudrah, you don't, do not say he has two qudras, qudratain. He has one qudra. This is the meaning of oneness in attributes. Similarly, if I say Allah has al-ilm, he has one attribute of al-ilm, not two attributes. The second meaning of this is that we do not ascribe the attributes of Allah to the makhluk. Whatever attributes are of Allah, we ascribe them to Allah, not to the makhluk. The creation does not have al-ilm of Allah. The creation does not have al-qudra of Allah. And then we have Al-Wahdaniyah in the Af'al of Allah, the divine actions of Allah. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone has his divine actions. We do not ascribe the actions of the makhluk to Allah, uh, uh, the actions of Allah to the makhluk. Like Allah alone is a razaq. We do not ascribe a rizq to makhluk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the one who gives death and life. We do not ascribe that to the makhluk. Of course, if we say the angel of death or this person took the soul, it means what? Majaz, metaphor. So that is the meaning of what? Of tawheed. What is the meaning of shirk? A shirk, polytheism, is a ta'addud, fi that 
ascribing a multiple multiplicity of gods to Allah multiplicity in the sifat of Allah multiplicity in the actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at-ta'addud that is shirk so when you ascribe one or more, two gods or when you ascribe the attributes of Allah to makhluk to creation or the divine actions of Allah to the makhluk this falls under shirk someone may say at this point a shubha comes into people's minds that is if someone prostrates to a cross a cross a crucifix or an idol but he believes this is not God why do we declare him a kafir the answer is because a, a crucifix or an idol has taken the place of a religious signia a religious signification a crucifix is associated with Christianity similarly an idol is associated with Hinduism or polytheism therefore prostrating to an idol or prostrating to a crucifix is kufr the person does an act of kufr because those things are known to be signs of kufr even if he is not believing that this cross is God or the idol is God the action itself becomes kufr disbelief but that is the definition of tawheed and shirk then another attribute that is essential to cover but before moving on to that attribute some people they ask the question why do you then because Quran says فَلَا تَدْعُ مَعَ اللَّهِ إِلَهًا آخَرًا do not call upon another God with Allah why do you people say Ya Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and some people they call upon the awliyaullah doesn't this entail shirk the response is that this issue is not an issue of shirk and kufr because no one ascribes the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam or the awliya of Allah as being gods with Allah neither do they ascribe the attributes of Allah to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam neither do they ascribe the actions of Allah to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam or to the awliya so the one who calls nida if someone does nida proclamation the hadith states the action is by intention no one intends to call upon another person with the intention of ascribing the attributes of Allah to that person or ascribing the actions of Allah to that person no Muslim does this if they do that then they fall into shirk but generally the Muslims do not do that and therefore calling upon someone doesn't fall into aqidah it falls into fiqh it's a fiqh issue is it allowed or isn't it allowed it's not kufr and shirk, kufr, uh, and shirk. it falls into fiqh is it allowed is it not allowed of course we know the sahaba and what's authentically reported number one abdullah bin umar radiallahu anhuma when his leg hurt he would say ya muhammadah sallallahu alayhi wasallam this is very important to know because when you say ya muhammadah it has the ha at the end it means a help it it means a proclamation for help but sayyiduna abdullah bin umar radiallahu anhuma would do this because by remembering the Prophet ﷺ, he would feel better. And this is recorded by Imam al-Bukhari in Al-Adab al-Mufrad. Similarly, in the battle of Al-Yamamah, the companions Ali Muridwan, their slogan was Ya Muhammadah, which is authentically reported by Al-Hafiz bin Kathir, Rahimahullah in Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah. So today if someone says Ya Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam it cannot be shirk in any way or form because no one ascribes the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as being a God with Allah or having the attributes of Allah or the actions of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala This is absolutely important to know because people declare other Muslims as being Quburi, grave worshippers 
based upon this one issue. There's no way you can declare those Muslims as being Quburiyun, as being grave worshippers. Even the acts that are condemnable, like tawaf around graves, sajda around graves, we condemn those acts. We do not rush to call the people kuffar. Because the intention is not ibadah, but what we do is we prohibit them from doing tawaf around graves. We prohibit them from sajda at graves. We prohibit them from kissing graves because that is a fiqh issue. It's an issue of fiqh. Secondly, with the attribute of al-qudra, divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many times, people bring up questions with regard to the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm sure many of you in your RS classes, for instance, atheists have brought up questions like, if Allah is all-powerful, why can he create a boulder so huge that he himself cannot lift the boulder? This is a common question. But many of you must know the answer. The response to that would be that the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only relates to mumkinat possibilities. It does not relate to the rationally impossible. So the question is flawed. It was as if the questioner is asking, can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make himself powerless? And the answer is no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not make himself powerless because his divine power only relates to that which is possible. And this of course resolves many naughty problems for people. One of those problems being that they ask, can God come onto earth in the form of a man? The answer is that relates to impossibilities because God being contained by time and place is an impossibility because he is the creator of time and place. So remember the essential rule that the Qudra of Allah only relates to those things which are possible. It does not relate to those things which are what? Impossible. It only relates to what is rationally possible. Having said that, the, what I mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not contained by time and place. Al-Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi rahimahullah ta'ala, the author of Bayanu Sunnati wal-Jama'ah, the famous Aqeedah, Aqeedah Tahawiyah. He states in his Aqeedah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not have appendages, arkan. He does not have body parts. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala transcends similarity to creation in any way or form. And also that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not contained by time and place. لا تحويه الجهات الست كسائر المبتدعات That the six directions do not contain him like everything else which is created. That means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from time and place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has created time and place. And he exists now as he has always existed. So if someone asks the question, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the universe or out the universe, the question is flawed. Because in and out of the universe does not apply to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because he existed before in and out were created. He existed before in and out were created. After location was created, he exists as he has always been. And this is what Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu an said. He is now as he has always been. He is now as he has always been. He does not undergo change. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not undergo change like the creation, the makhluk. This is why we say that we do not ascribe physical location to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We do not say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in a literal upward direction. There is a hadith where a sahabi radiallahu anhu, he slapped a slave girl. 
and he went to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he said, "Me being a son of Adam, she had me angered. She was herding some of the goats. One of the goats went missing. He slapped her. He said, 'I have done wrong by slapping her. Shall I set her free?' So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, 'Bring her to me.'" He said to her, Ain Allah, where is Allah? She said, Fissama, in the heavens. He said, Who am I? She said, The Messenger of Allah. Rasulullah said, She is a believer, set her free. People take from this, the Salafi movement, they take from this to mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in a literal upward direction from one report the response to that is that if you take one report in isolation then you will come to that conclusion but when you gather all, all the various re reports on that incident you'll find out that the woman was a mute she was deaf and Rasulullah communicated with her and she pointed upwards. Why would she do that? Because she was unable to speak. And in that time people worshipped what? Idols. And the idols were located in those directions. So if, if she was a polytheist, she would have pointed at the idols. Nevertheless, it does not make believing Allah in an upward direction as a point of doctrine. Common Muslims do not have to believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in a literal upward direction. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from time and place and is not located by the six cardinal directions. Because he created the six cardinal directions, he is now as he has always been and this is the doctrine of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Then with regard to Al-Qudrah, the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, people ask another point, which is they say if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everything, then why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala permit the creation of evil? The answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not curtail the freedom of choice of people on earth. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervened into everything on earth, then our freedom of choice would be curtailed and undermined. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not intervene always on earth. He permits people to exercise their free will. But on the day of judgment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, the entire picture will be visible to people where they will observe the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and where people will be compensated for their bad actions and their good actions. If they did good, they will be compensated. If they did bad, they will be punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This they refer to as the problem of evil. So they say, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala permit natural disasters? The response is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fa'alun lima yurid, the do of what he wills. La yus'alu amma yaf'alu wa hum yus'alun. He is not questioned regarding what he does, but they will be questioned regarding what they do. And also the divine wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, people do not observe the hikmah, the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala behind those actions. So the qudrah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not undermined by the fact that he permits people to exercise their own free will. So these are some aspects with regard to the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which is essential for us to know. And I believe Everyone here should memorize the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You'll find them in my book, 
Islam and says atheism within chapter 3 toward the end I have listed the attributes of Allah which everyone should memorize and know and in fact they should read the entire book especially younger people in your RS class or your, your A-level courses some people they do philosophy you will find so many answers in that book that if you cannot even read the entire book some people they complain about the level of English it's a poor reflection of your own reading capacity if you complain about the English it's standard English meaning if I know Richard Dawkins will be reading this book why would I decrease the level of English the whole the entire purpose of the book it's written for atheists to read so similarly rather than crying about the standard of English raise your own standard raise your own standard of English but you will find in the content page the relevant discussions so there may be a question bugging people what, what is the answer to this you go into the content page you will find so many answers you go straight to the passage the passages are short they give you the concise answers you need so within the book you will also find the divine attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which everyone should memorize. From that we go into the discussion of the messengers of Allah alayhimu salatu wassalam. What are the essential attributes of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? But before going into that there is a common question some people ask and that question is they say from all these world religions how do we know the religion of Islam is the truthful religion how do we know Islam amongst the world religions is truthful the answer is very simple firstly Islam is a continuation of the revelations from the time of Sayyiduna Adam salam up to the time of Sayyiduna Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam Islam is the updated version in every age. The last and final update is what was revealed upon Sayyiduna Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the form of Al-Quranul Kareem and its explanation which is the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So that is Islam. When we go back you will find that Sayyiduna Isa salam, revelation was sent to Sayyiduna Isa salam, but the re revelation was tampered and prior to him the re revelation upon Musa salam, but the revelation was tampered a common question they ask they say if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised to preserve his revelations why were they able to tamper those revelations the Quran states inna nahnu nazalna dhikra wa inna lahu lahafidhun indeed we revealed a dhikra the remembrance and indeed we will preserve this remembrance meaning the Quran well, how is that a response that the guarantee of a preservation was left for Al-Quran Al-Kareem all the previous revelations the preservation was left to the people so the Jews or Bani Israel Bani Israel did not preserve the revelation Bani Israel failed in this endeavor similarly the followers of Isa salam failed in this endeavor but when it came to Al-Quran Al-Kareem Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not obligate the ummah he guaranteed its preservation the guarantee does not negate the role of human beings it just guarantees that human beings will continue preserving Al-Quran Al-Kareem so from the choices of Judaism and Christianity and Islam Islam is the last revelation on a series of Anbiya Ali While there are two other major faiths which I'll, I have left, one is Buddhism, 
Buddhism does not have the belief in a divine being. So we negate Buddhism. As for Hinduism, Hinduism was not any organized religion prior to British rule of India. Before British rule of India, Hinduism, what became known as Hinduism, was an amalgamation of different pagan cults that believed in enlightened be human beings who had their own enlightened illumination that they would write down whatever they felt an illuminated human being should write down which was written in Sanskrit and then preserved as ancient scripture but it lays no claim to being a divine revelation from Allah unlike Islam so this makes a distinction between Islam and all the world religions but then people ask a common question and that common question is they say this in fact happened a non-muslim came to ask me last week why would a muslim born in a muslim family have the advantage over a non-muslim born in a non-muslim family why should the muslim have an advantage the answer is there is no guarantee that the advantage is there because there are many muslims who may leave islam and there are many non-muslims who enter islam but who said a person is necessarily punished without the conditions of punishment being fulfilled there are 10 conditions 10 conditions shurut of taklif 10 conditions for taklif what is taklif the obligation to believe from amongst those obligations is that the message of Islam reaches the person in its correct form and the person has understood what is being conveyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبَعَثَ رَسُولًا we will indeed not punish until we dispatch a messenger until a message reaches the people so there may be people in the Amazonian jungles tribal people who never heard of Islam who never heard of the Quran but they will never be punished why because the message of Islam even though there's detail with regard to this issue there's no guarantee of them being punished secondly the person must understood what is being conveyed so you may have an old woman who lives on a road and the message <clears throat> Islam reaches her in her old age when she's unable to comprehend what is being conveyed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge the individual. But we do say as Muslims that Christians will be punished, Jews will be punished, all the other religions will be punished. But that is not regarding individual salvation. Individual salvation is left to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when a non-Muslim dies, the Sharia prohibits us from supplicating for them the sharia stops us from making dua for them the sharia stops us from reading salatul janaza over them but allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge them ultimately similarly a muslim dies we do dua for him we praise janaza but inwardly he could be a munafiq a hypocrite and on the day of judgment he faces hellfire because he denied the message of uh, the message of Islam so therefore there is no advantage an intellectual capacity comes into has a key role also how a young child born to a cocaine addict mother single cocaine addict mother that child his mind will be affected through the abuse when he grows up his mental capacity is impaired he is emotionally scarred for life that child Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge him when he's an adult when he dies the ultimate judgment is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whether he had the mental capacity to understand and like this you can make many scenarios and it answers the question very fairly so some people 
they tend to get bamboozled with these type of questions when in reality they are not difficult questions for people to answer. If you once you hear the response, you are able to give the response yourself. But going into the attributes of the messengers of Allah, alayhim salatu wasalam, you have firstly al-fatana, intelligence, that they be intelligent. Secondly, you have a sidq, that they are truthful. You have al-amana, that they are trustworthy. And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam was known as al-ameen, al-sadiq al-ameen, the truthful one and the trustworthy one. So when we go into the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we see from the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that he was a truthful messenger of Allah. So what happens in today's day and age? People attempt to tarnish the image of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Because what is Iman? Al-Iman is love of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa The more you increase in love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa the more your Iman will increase. The more you decrease in love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the more your iman will decrease. So ultimately, every Muslim, all of us here, should attempt always to increase our love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Of course, this is why we encourage people to recite salawat and salam upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in abundance, non-stop. Non-stop reciting of salawat and salam. Because it increases the love. But what people attempt to do is tarnish the character of the Prophet Some of the questions are ridiculous. Like for instance, they will ask a ridiculous question like, Why did Rasulullah have multiple wives? Why is that question ridiculous? Because we live in a day and age, a day and age where people claim to espouse freedom of action. And freedom of action entails that if a man sleeps around with multiple women, he will be praised for that action. So what moral grounds upon which mor morality is the modern mind asking with regard to marriage. Because in Islam, marriage is praiseworthy. The, a man having sexual prowess, sexual energy, is something, a part of his nature which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created him with. If he does haram with that sexual urge, that is unpraiseworthy. But if he does halal with that urge, then he is praiseworthy, like he gets married. So the common Muslim man is permitted to marry four times. But Rasulullah was given more permission. That is not something unpraiseworthy. So the moral standard by which we judge the action is not the moral standard of Western principles. The moral standard is the moral standard of Islam. And then someone may say, with regard to the same objection, a response also is that Rasulullah only married those women after the age of 54. Not in his youth. And the majority of them were widows. Their husbands had died in war. Or they were women whose husbands were non-Muslims, who had left them, abandoned them. Or so, this question in itself is flawed. Similarly, when they ask a common question, which is emotionally charged, they say, why did your messenger وسلم, marry Aisha when she was only nine years old? The response is very simple. That firstly, a Sayyidatu Aisha herself states, 
in a Tirmidhi. That she was deemed a woman at the time. What does that tell you? That ancient Arabian society deemed a girl to be a woman when she passes the age of puberty. So whether she was nine years old, some young girls, they have the haid, menzies at the age of nine. In ancient Arabian society, nine, a woman who would pass the age of puberty would be deemed as a grown woman. And a Sayyidatu Aisha radiallahu anha states that. So why would that become an issue today? Because what the non-Muslim attempts to place in the mind of young Muslims is the, to tarnish the character of the Prophet The other aspect which they bring up is with regard to jihad. They say Islam was a tribal religion and they say that Rasulullah was a tribal warlord that Rasulullah gathered the people in order to attain war booty and wealth. How is this refuted? The basic response you can give is that when Rasulullah conquered Mecca al-Mukarramah, he had over 10,000 fighters. They entered the city of Mecca al-Mukarramah. Yet the entire Mecca, the entire Quraysh, the entire tribe was given amnesty. Peaceful conduct. There were only a few people who were killed. Few people who were killed. But on closer examination, you will find out that they were killed for a crime that they did. At three or four people. They were killed for a crime that they did. But general amnesty was given for all the people of Quraysh. But that was not the conduct of tribal war leaders in the time in 7th century Arabia or anywhere else in the world. What did tribal war leaders do in that time? They would enter a town and they would kill and pillage and take everything. They would ransack the city. None of that was done by Rasulullah These are essential points for younger people to memorize. Why? Because the ultimate goal of some of these non-Muslims, some of them, is to remove the Iman from the hearts of people. This is a goal some of them have. They even have bets with one another. Bets to make bets that I bet you that I can make this guy believe Islam. And they also do online grooming. Online, they will groom young Muslims in order to make them leave Islam. It's happened cases, young men. Even with this LGBT homosexuals, you will have some of them attempting to seduce young Muslim men to leave Islam and to become homosexuals. Why? Because LGBT in itself has become a lifestyle. It's an identity. It's not just a choice. LGBT is a movement to make a lifestyle. When you make that decision, you live an entire lifestyle. And when they indoctrinate young people with LGBT in the schools, they will never inform them with regard to the sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, that are spread through homosexuality. They will never inform them of that. They will only inform them of what they do in order to say that um, young people must be tolerant, as if there is an intolerance in the first place. Most people are unaware. But when young people are indoctrinated, they are not informed with regard to the STDs. What will happen to a person who lives that lifestyle when he goes over the age of 60? When he goes over the age of 60, and he has no family and no children and even if he adopts it's not the same and what will happen what type of sexually transmitted diseases that person may get so the people who promote LGBT and the wrong lifestyle 
attempt to tarnish the character of the Prophet it makes no sense. But mainly when people attempt to tarnish the characteristic of the Prophet it revolves around those things which I have mentioned. With regard to slavery, they will mention that there was slavery common in the time of the Prophet it's true. But they will not mention to you that in 63 years of the life of the Prophet Rasulullah purchased 63 slaves and set 63, those 63 slaves free. One slave for each year of his life. Meaning Islam emancipated all the slaves and gave them rights. So the verses in the Quran regarding slavery, it gave the slaves rights to the point that only one form of slavery was ever permitted in Islam. That form of slavery is amongst warmongers, people who wage war against Islam. The ruler has the right to enslave them. But even then, they have rights. They are not locked up for 24 hours in a jail cell like in Guantanamo Bay. So these are some of the points they bring up with regard to the character of the Prophet but then some of the objections enter the domain of Sharia. Of course, in Kubra al-Yaqiniyat, he does not enter that discussion. He doesn't enter that discussion. So what I will go into is another aspect of the book. That is doctrine relating to miracles. That in this day and age that we live in, people deny miracles. Al-Mu'jizat. What is Al-Mu'jizah? Al-Mu'jizah is a prophetic miracle. Different to Al-Karama. What is Al-Karama? Al-Karama is a miracle created at the hand, on the hand of a wali of Allah. It occurs from time to time. Rare occurrences. Maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not create those karamat openly amongst people in this day and age because in this day and age people will mock a karama and say it's just trickery they may say the person is just doing magic or he's lying ultimately Islam does not depend on karamat because Islam is a, is a religion, a deen that appeals to the mind also but do karamat or mu'jizat contradict contradict the mind the answer is no what is a karama or, or a mu'jizah it's a violation of the laws for instance the laws of physics dictate that water flows downwards but who created that law Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates water that flows upwards, this is possible. To deny that would be undermining the qudra of Allah, the divine power of Allah. But the material, the materialistic mind observes the material world and deems the laws as absolutely necessary. And then they state, that these laws, to violate those laws is irrational. Now if you remember at the beginning of the lecture I said that there is a distinction between a rational judgment and a law of physics. Why the rational judgment is based solely on the mind. So hundreds of years ago, if someone observed, an, if someone was told metal can fly, metal can fly, and carry hundreds of humans across the world. The ignorant person will say this is rationally impossible. What mistake is the ignorant person making? He's confusing the laws of physics with the judgment of the mind. But hundreds of years later now we see and observe that aeroplanes do in fact carry metal, carries hundreds of people and 
carries them across the globe. Why? Because the laws of physics are being violated through an invention known as the aeroplane. But that's not an irrational thing. It's a rational thing. So miracles only relate to rational judgments. They do not violate rational judgments. Miracles go, uh, violate the laws of physics. And the laws of physics in Ilm al-Kalam are referred to as Al-Ahkam al-Adiyah, general judgments, habitual, customary practices. So this is essential for young people to note that there is a difference between the violation of the laws of physics and an, a contradiction with what? With uh, the rational judgment. Another aspect that is discussed in the book is some doctrinal issues that relate to what we know as asamiyat. What are asamiyat? Asamiyat relates to what we hear from the Quran and Sunnah. We only know of its truthfulness from because the Quran has informed us. One of those things is the raising of Sayyiduna Isa salam and the descent of Sayyiduna Isa salam in Akhiru Zaman, in the end of times. Sayyiduna Isa salam was raised and he will descend. But how do we know this? Does this contradict logic? The answer is no. Because the question is, can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raise a man from the earth and take him to the heavens and keep him alive? The answer is yes. It's within the qudra of Allah. Can Allah send down that man back onto earth in the end of times? The answer is yes. But how do we know this has occurred? Because the Quran informs us with regard to the ascent of Isa alayhi salam. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Rather Allah raised him to himself. Now some of the, this is qat'i in the Quran. Denial of this entails unbelief. If someone denies the raising of Isa to the heavens, they commit unbelief. Because it is qat'i in the Quran, decisive. Some people attempt to interpret it, but that interpretation is misguided because it's playing with the language of the Quran. But additionally, from over 28 Sahaba, we know that Rasulullah has informed us from over 28 Sahaba that Isa will descend down in the end of times. 28 Sahaba in over 80 hadith. Over 80 hadith. How people attempt to deny that is by saying these hadith were forged by Christians. But when you examine the chains of narration of each Sahabi, you'll realize there are no Christians in the chain of narration. They are all Muslims. Authentically going back to Rasulullah and through the companions that Rasulullah informed us that Isa will descend in the end of time. This is mutawatir, mass transmitted. So this is a doctrinal issue. And violation of this entails unbelief. But this had a historical aspect to it in over a hundred years ago. Why? Because there is another doctrine which is known known in the deen of Allah by necessity which is the finality of prophethood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Al-Quran Al-Kareem مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحَدٍ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ وَلَاكِنْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَخَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is not the father of any one of the men amongst you. Nevertheless, he is the messenger of Allah 
the finality of prophets. This verse of the Quran is decisive. A violation of this verse entails unbelief. And in an authentic hadith, mutawatir hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, and I am the finality of prophets. There is no prophet after me. Some people, they ask an absurd question. What is that absurd question? They say, if there is no prophet after Rasulullah Isa will return. It's an absurd question. He was a prophet before. It's not referring to the return of Isa salam, it's referring to a new prophet. There is no new prophet. So Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani was a man from Punjab who in the 1860s was debating Christian missionaries. And when he was debating Christian missionaries, he developed a megalomania, an inflated ego. And then later on, he had some medical issues. When he had those medical issues, he was administered with some drugs. Those drugs contained opium and cannabis and these type of things. This history is, in, is covered here in the Kubra Liqiniyat al The details are found in, it, in this. Uh, it's also covered in my book, Navigating the End of Time, with regard to Mirza Ghulam. And what happened? He started having delusions. And then he claimed to be a new prophet. But how did he claim this? He said, the Prophet ﷺ is Khatmun Nabiyyin. What that means is he stamps new everyone. And he can stamp a new prophet that can appear afterwards. And he claimed he was a new prophet that had been stamped. Of course, this is a gross misinterpretation. It goes against the correct interpretation. Mirza Ghulam Ahmad initially claimed to be the Mahdi. First he said Mujaddid, the renewer of Islam. Then he claimed to be the Mahdi. And then after claiming to be the Mahdi, he finally claimed to be Isa salam. And in order to claim to be Isa salam, he had to say, that the real Isa salam had died and, will, and is never returning. So he said Isa salam migrated from Jerusalem to Kashmir and died in Kashmir. And he denied the raising of Isa salam and the descent of Sayyiduna Isa salam. When he denied this, his followers, they wrote istifta they questioned some of the scholars of Al-Azhar, Al-Azhar University in Egypt. Al-Azhar at that time had been, at that time had, remember Egypt was governed by a man known as what? Lord Cromer. Who was Lord Cromer? Lord Cromer was the Lord that was placed over Egypt by the British. Lord Cromer from a banking family, he recruited certain people to undermine Al-Azhar al-Sharif. One of those people, his name was Muhammad Abdu. His teacher was Jamaluddin al-Afghani. Jamaluddin al-Afghani was an Iranian. He called himself al-Afghani, but he was from Iran. Jamaluddin al-Afghani denied miracles. Denied miracles. And denied what we know as Kharq al-Ada, the violation of the norms, because they believed it was a contradiction to science. So he was a materialist. One of the innovations that they introduced was the denial of the descent of Isa salam. He introduced many other innovations like uh, believing that the four schools of fiqh are outdated. So all of this history is in Kubra al-Yaqiniyat al-Kawniyat. All the history is in this book. He believed the schools, fiqh schools are outdated. So, which is false. Because 
if I was delivering a lecture on that subject, many examples can be given that the four schools are very sophisticated and not outdated the way people make them out to be. But one of the, when the istifta was sent, one of the fatwas that they wrote back was the denial of the descent of Isa But what you need to know with regard to this is firstly that the Quran explicitly mentions the ascent of Isa and in the hadith from 28 Sahaba, there is mentioned the descent of Sayyiduna Isa alayhi salam. 